This month, we're starting the exploration of a subject of bad mother anxiety. My guest will be Ayelet Waldman. Ayelet is the author of a recent book, Bad Mother, a chronicle of maternal crimes, minor calamities, and occasional moments of grace. She's the mother of four kids. She lives in Berkeley, California, and she worked as a public defense lawyer before she became a mom and started writing novels and murder mysteries. Welcome to Safe Space, Ayelet. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I want to start right out by asking you, what is bad mother anxiety? What is bad mother anxiety? It's what we all feel, that kind of little voice in the back of our heads that says we're not doing it right. We're making mistakes. We're ruining our children for life. We're preparing them for therapy right, by right. forgetting to pack a snack with no partially hydrogenated vegetable oil in it or by, you know, missing the ballet recital because we have to work or by, you know, making cupcakes that, um, instead of buying cupcakes at the grocery store on the way to the birthday party, instead of making them from scratch. Right. So we're talking about a level of detail here, kind of perfectionism that Mm -hmm. is just impossible to achieve. Absolutely. And I think we have this notion now, you know, when I, when I went around and I asked friends what to give me a definition of a good mother, what they came up with was completely crazy. It was basically Mary Poppins, but you don't have to pay her, and she never leaves. Right. And, you know, it, it, that's, it, it's worse than the stereotypical good mother that we saw in the 1950s because it's complicated by, you know, by the, the kind of 21st century neuroses that we have about everything from, you know, PBAs in the bottles to this um, really crazy fear we all suffer from about sending our children out to play, this heightened anxiety about, you know, pedophiles and predators and that kind of thing. It's, um, it's you know, that it's that slow drip drip that seems to be poisoning our experience of parenthood all too often. So there's a fear that so many things can hurt our child. Right. And we have to be hyper vigilant and protect them from everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, everything we hear about, it's a sense, I think, you know, I'm trying to think of what it really means. And I think it is a sense that every thing you read about, you know, a, a child being snatched, um, a, a little boy being born with ambiguous genitalia as a result of PDA exposure, um, a vaccine causing um, an intense reaction that leads to brain death. It's the sense that all of those things could happen to your kid. Right. Um, and just beca- because you know about them. And um, and this and I think it, that's, that is human nature to a certain extent. It's very hard to understand what it means to have a 1 in 2.5 million chance of having something terrible happen to your child. But, um, but it's really easy to understand that one story of the little girl skipping rope in her front yard who got snatched, you know. Right. So in a way, we are victims of the information age. Absolutely. The fact that I so much so. is available to us actually haunts us. I think so. I really do think so, that we, haven't, um, that, that we have so many different ways that we hear about these things that cause us so much anxiety. And also, we're victims, if you, I hate to use that word, but we, we, we're, women of my generation, women who are in their 30s and 40s now, are kind of in this strange moment in time where we were raised by mothers who, if they weren't feminists, they at least had some exposure to the women's movement. They raise their daughters, not just most of us, not just to be homemakers, but to also be professionals. So that um, when we were little girls, we wanted to be doctors, we wanted to be lawyers, we wanted to be firemen. We never said, you know, I want to be, you know, I want to stay home and raise my kids. That just wasn't one of the many, many ambitions that we had. And then what happened was we, you know, went off and we achieved and we 
got those careers or some approximation of what we imagined. And then we had changed, but the world did not change um, as fast as we did. So suddenly we're in a situation where, um, where you go out into the workplace with all these ambitions and you have your children and, oh, my goodness, it's actually incredibly difficult to do all those things that our mothers told us we could do and should do. And um, our, I, I don't know any woman who hasn't had to make some kind of professional sacrifice. Some leave work altogether. Some take different kinds of jobs. Some simply find themselves in different positions in their jobs once they have children. And um, it's that kind of pressure, too, that causes us to, you know, we, we get we we get anxious and fraught because of that because if you've had to make these sacrifices well what you've sacrificed for had better be worth it so we bring to bear all those anxieties and um sense of sacrifice and sense of guilt onto raising children you know you you write eloquently in the, in the first chapter in your book about the guilt that mothers feel when they don't feel totally fulfilled by mm-hmm. being mothers and that really plays into what you're saying that if we're if we've been raised with this idea that we could be anything and that we would be fulfilled by that and then we we cut back on that in order to be mothers there's this guilt that comes from feeling like oh, I'm, right. I'm not enjoying it enough. Here I've sacrificed my whole identity. I you know I wanted to be a veterinarian my whole life and I'm not a veterinarian and I'm a mother and worse than that I'm not feeling fulfilled. How can that be? You know how how shameful is it for me? Not to feel a sense of, you know, even if, and most, you know, most, I'm sure there's stay-at-home mothers who feel like this is the absolute perfect job for them, like they were born to do this. But I think most people don't feel that way. And thus, you know, it, it, when you're doing a job that you have to do because you're earning money and, you know, maybe it's not the most fulfilling thing in the world, you say to yourself, all right, whatever. You don't expect to be fulfilled. Uh-huh. But when you're taking care of your children and you're competent, but maybe not, you know, a version of Martha Stewart and, you know, Michelle Obama wrapped up in one, <laughs> then you start to say to yourself, you know, well, how can this be? How can I not be the best at this? This is, you know, these are my children. This is what I've chosen. This is, these are the people I love. I think there's there. a real dearth of honesty about that. I, I think, you know, particularly in the early years of motherhood, that phrase, I'm loving every minute of it. Right. Which I've come to see now as a kind of hostile act. I absolutely think that's a hostile <laughs> act. It's crazy. You tell me. You're really loving any, every minute of it. Well, I'm going to come to your house at 3 o'clock in the morning. Right. When the lie. baby has an exploding diaper and you haven't had more than two hours sleep in three months. And you tell me you're loving that minute of it. I don't yeah. buy it for a second. I don't Or you're I... loving the minute where you're sitting at the table doing your son's math homework and he's in second grade and he's got 45 minutes of you know, mindless math equations. Tell me you're loving that. I'll show me someone who loves that. I'll show you a crazy person. Exactly. Exactly. But the problem is when you're so sleep deprived in those first few years, you can't recognize that. You don't recognize it as craziness. You hear it as a tyranny. Right. And you feel like you're failing because in fact, you know, for sure that you're not loving every minute, but it feels just terrible. You know, it's funny. I remember when my my oldest daughter, I have four kids. My oldest was born um, friends would call me in the hospital and they say, aren't you just completely in love? And I had had a 36-hour labor in a C-section. And what I felt in those first couple of days was exhausted and also sort of, it was amazing to me. Here was this person. I'd given birth to this person and she'd existed only in my mind really until that uh-huh. moment. And I wasn't in love. I was stunned and excited and terrified. And, and But that, that phone call, the aren't you just completely in love was 
such a reproach. Yes. And um, and what was really curious is that, you know, I do feel like that had an influence on my first months of mothering. Not that I didn't feel that at at first, but that I expected to feel that. And then, you know, when my son was born, my second child, I felt that right away. I felt for some reason it it was a much more difficult birth, but I guess there were a lot of endorphins running around after 44 hours of unmedicated labor. Uh. And I um, and I did feel this incredible, intense connection with him from the very beginning. But do I love my son more than my daughter? Of course not. No, but um, I, I think you are naming something very important because so many mothers that I work with, even if they had, you know, this completely natural childbirth at the birthing center and everything goes, you know, to me, the perfect birth, they still are blaming themselves if they didn't have that perfect bonding moment mm-hmm. that... People hold themselves to and then feel such a feeling of failure about if they don't have right. it. And we can't, right. that, that can't be manufactured. Right. You're lucky if you have it. Right. <laughs> and it also doesn't really mean anything. You know, in the long run, it doesn't really mean anything about what kind of relationship you're going to have with your kid or what your kid's going to be like. And, you know, I think we get so wrapped up in these little things and thinking that these things are going to have a profound effect on um, your kids. So my kids started a new school this year, my three younger kids, and this is this back-to-school night. Our first back-to-school night with the second graders, and the mom raised her hand, and she had some concerns that her daughter wasn't reading. And another mom raised her hand to give this woman all these tips on how her child could read it, would, it would, right. could read more quickly. And then at the end of her little... Um, her little Speech, she said, and you know, you really have to do this because if you don't, you could damage her for life. Oh, no. And here I am. Okay, this is the first time most of these parents are seeing me, right? Uh-oh. And it is the moment for me to shut up. But, of course, but do you? I do not shut up. I couldn't, I just couldn't let that woman say that to this poor, you know, this woman who was lucky enough to have an early reader. So I said, you know what, I am pretty sure that there's not a whole lot you could do, you know, aside from dismemberment that would damage your children for life. Uh I think, you know, it's probably great advice to read to them every night and do all that stuff, and, and that's all wonderful. But if you don't manage to do it, I promise you they're not going to be damaged for life. I think what you said is so important. My, my observation is that the fear of damage Mm-hmm. underlies so much of the way that w- women judge themselves. And, that, and I think I, my perspective as a psychiatrist is, as someone who actually believes in and practices psychotherapy, I actually think the culture of therapy has been very destructive here because so many people have gone into therapy, you know, worked their wounds over and felt like they were damaged. Mm-hmm. And the terrible downside of that is then this belief that a child is so easily damaged. And in fact, Absolutely. I don't think that's true at all. There is this kind of, I, how many times have you heard someone make the joke, oh, that's something they're going to have to work out in therapy? So many you know, times. And, it, and everyone says it is a joke. And at the same time, there is this sense that it's just a ticking time bomb and everything you, and I have that sense to this day. I mean, I always think, you know, what are my kids going to be talking about to their shrinks? And, um, <laughs> and I really do think it has this, this um, first of all, the notion that you can be damaged. That we yes. spend so much time talking about how our parents damaged us. Yes. Um, and, you know, I sort of, you know, there are extreme cases of abuse. But I think for most of us, I think that there should be a moratorium on blaming your parents after age 30. Now, mind you, I have just written an entire book where I blame all of my motherhood problems on my own mother throughout the book very liberally. Oh, really? You know, through, I always say this is, I, I have thought about this and I have 
decided that the fault lies with my mother. <laughs> so, you know, so take my words with a grain of salt. But don't you think at some point you have to take responsibility for your own actions? And if we did, if we were willing to say, you know, people are people and they have problems and they're born the way they're born and they're, you know, everyone has their own issues that life brings them and that, you know, that the, the shape of their brain brings them. But that who your mother is and whether or not you were bottle-fed or, or breastfed is really not the big issue. I think that's true. There's two things I would add to that. One is I think there's a big difference between damage and wound. Mm -hmm. It may well be that you were wounded, but that doesn't mean you were damaged. Right. I think that's a key distinction. I also think that our ability to forgive our mothers or accept them is, is intrinsically related to our ability to accept ourselves as mothers. Mm -hmm. And that the more we're caught up in blaming our mothers the more we are judging our more, you know, more subject to harsh internal judgment about what a bad mother I am. Right. So, um, I want to shift the subject just a little. My just, mother would be so happy to hear you say that. Okay. You, you, we'll, we'll give her a coffee at the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. The show is Safe Space. And I'm talking to a yell at Waldman about bad mother anxiety. And I, I was so intrigued at the beginning of your book when you talk about your decision to tell the truth to your children no matter what. Mm -hmm. That your idea is that even when it's difficult, you, you're going to be honest with them. And right. That, and, and because, as I understood you, that you felt that that was really an antidote to shame. Mm -hmm. And bad mother anxiety and shame are so connected. You know, we feel we, we, we want to hide. We want to not talk about our failings. Um, and yet I'm interested in the things that I think mothers are often inclined to hide are the things that they fear would hurt their children if they, if their children knew, mm -hmm. like for instance, the fact that early motherhood can really be boring right? or that mothers can feel ambivalent. They can love their child passionately and that at other times they can just be fed up and wish they never were a mother, but all the time that they deeply love their child, those kind of feelings we, we can we feel like if we were to tell our kids that, it would wound them. And I'm curious, do you, are the things you don't tell your kids, do you feel like those things would wound your kids, or do you, you know, do you say it all? Um, no, I mean, I, 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 I protect them from plenty of things. I don't say things. You know, if I'm, if I'm sitting in a moment and one of them, you know, I just don't really like one of them at the moment because they're driving me crazy as much as I love them. Right. I'm not going to say, you know, Mommy doesn't like you right now. Right. But, um... But I do feel like it's important to be honest about, specifically about um, the ambivalence, because your children know that you feel that way. I mean, the thing about kids is they are remarkably adept at testing out your feelings. So they know exactly how ambivalent you're feeling. Mm. And I think it, being honest about that gives them a sense of control. I mean, what I always say to my kids is, this isn't about you, this is about me. It's about how I'm feeling. You don't make me feel a certain way, and you, it's not your fault, and it's not your responsibility, and, you know, mommy's in a crappy mood. That's just <laughs> the way it is. You know, sometimes sometimes I'll say to my kids, um, like, I'll say, it'll be, you know, after dinner and after story and everything, and suddenly somebody wants a snack or somebody wants this or that. I will say, the kitchen is closed, and the mommy machine is turned off, and mommy is done for the day. And, um, you know, I say it like a joke, but they also know this means this is now time for me to go to bed. And this is, or this is time for me, if I really want something, to figure out whether I can get it for myself. And um, 
and I don't think it hurts them to know that. I think it, you know, I think it makes them feel, you know, my kids have a pretty, are pretty adept at, at, at sensing other people's emotions and also relating it to their own. It just makes them feel less awful if they're feeling ambivalent. Right. I mean, it strikes me that it's such a prevention for your kids to feel intense, bad mother anxiety. If right. they know that, in fact, it's totally fine to have moments of ambivalence. I mean, right. It's, I mean, I always protect like, people say, oh, you're poor children. You say all these things out loud. But I think, you know, I think it'll be great for my kids when they are parents uh-huh. to have this stuff. And like, so the big line everybody's so worried about my children knowing is I published this essay that, um, where I said I loved my husband more than my kids. And everyone was so worried about my poor kids finding out about that. And, you know... I did, before I went on Oprah to talk about the show, I did sort of sit down with my oldest and tell her, because I, I knew she wasn't going to read the New York Times, say, uh-huh. but I also knew that it was entirely possible that somebody would watch Oprah and then say to her, you know, your mommy doesn't love you. Right. So, um, but what, um, I started this long explanation with her, you know, saying, oh, why did I say that? And what mommy meant? And blah, blah, blah. And she kind of, at one point, she just sort of looks at me and she says, Duh, and walks away. And I'm like, think, I've known this forever. I know. Like, you think this is news, lady? Give me a break. <laughs> and, um, and, and, mm-hmm. but moreover, I actually think that, that being honest about the, that, the way that I feel about their dad and, and how central that love is in my life has given my kids an incredible sense of security. You know, every year they go to school. And every year when the school directory comes back, there are more and more kids with two addresses. And, um, you know, divorce is a real anxiety children, particularly American children, I think, feel. Uh-huh. And um, my kids don't feel any of that. You know, they don't, they don't worry that if mommy and daddy have an argument, that mommy and daddy are going to get divorced because they know they feel very safe in, in how we feel about one another. So, uh-huh. um, and I also think it gives them perspective. I think it's a huge burden to a child to feel like your mother's happiness depends on you. Right. She loves you more than anything else in the world and that how she feels about herself and how she feels about your daddy and how she feels about everything depends on you. I think that's a, that's a lot of pressure for a little kid. It is, and it's likely to make the, the child cautious to do anything that would rock the boat. Right, exactly, exactly. Right. And it also, in this, you know, I keep thinking to myself, so how, you know, the world is soon going to be run by people whose self-esteem we have nurtured so assiduously, right? The whole world has been constructed around their self-esteem. you got to kind of wonder, you know, are these people who are going to be empathetic and caring for the community, are they going to devote themselves to making sure the world is a better place, or are they going to be really, really worried about their own self-esteem? Sometimes it feels like a big bargain that this this idea that if you meet a child's needs when they're little, you know, they kind of grow out of those needs. Mm-hmm. And other people say, no, 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 you're just feeding an appetite. They'll just be, you know, demand to be the center of the world forever. I, you know, they, they, I, about a year and a half, two years ago, there was a lot of press around um, how do you educate managers to deal with children who, who with these new employees who've grown up in this kind of post-self-esteem era. And... Mm-hmm. um. There were all these, like, seminars for managers. You know, will teach you. You have to give them gold stars, and when they hand in a memo, you have to say, what a wonderful job, and look how well you researched this memo. Well, you know what? The economy tanks, and you know what people say now? It, they say, hand in your memo because that's the job, and you know what? Stop complaining because there's 65 other people who could do your job and do it for less money. 
So no gold stars for you. Get out and do your job. And I actually think that's really good for them. I think it's really, it's a nice right wake-up call. It's a worrisome feature in a way. You know, one of the things that you define in the book about the core, what makes a good mother, is self-abnegation, kind of mm-hmm. denying all of her needs and putting the child's needs always first. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great model for relationship. No, absolutely not. <laughs> no. I mean, neither is that a good model, nor is the opposite true. If you've raised a person who's used to having... Um, your needs abnegated, can you even use the word like that, for, um, for in favor of their own, what kind of a partner are they going to be? Exactly. That is worrisome. You know, I want to come back to the piece you were saying about how kids can already tell about your ambivalence. One of the key things that, that I think people come to therapy for is because they feel like their experience was not validated and that, you know, their parents would just deny it. And what, right. what you're doing is really validating what your kids already sense. Right. So, exactly. it's, in fact, it's the opposite of being crazy-making, and yet we are so afraid that to acknowledge ambivalence or to acknowledge boredom or to acknowledge needing a break mm-hmm. would be so wounding mm-hmm. when it may well be the opposite, that the denying of what they feel and already sense may be crazy-making for them. That's absolutely true. You know, I have this a funny story. Am I... I was talking to my mom once, and I said something about, oh, how you used to spank us when we were little. And my mom said, I never hit you. Never done. And I thought, oh, my God, what? And I started thinking back on how my memories had been so, what had gone wrong? And I had all these basically false memories. You know, and I, I thought, well, maybe because we're a family of yellers and because the volume was so loud, my memory turned that into physical. And and so I'm, I for years I thought that all those memories I had of, banking were just not, you know, they didn't exist, that they were like, you know, lies I'd made up in my head. And then my mom was cleaning out the attic and she sent me my diary from when I was a little girl. And in it was, she said, mommy spanked me today. And I thought, oh my God, you know, right. it, it, it did so happen. Right. And I had felt completely nutty that whole period where I was thinking, oh, well, wow, yes. my memory must be so, I'm such a crazy individual that I made up these false memories. But in fact, no, I didn't make up any false memories. Those things back did happen. Right. So we try to tell our children that we were all loving and that we only have loving feelings for them, but it's not, it's not true and it's not helpful. Exactly. Right. So, you know, you've written about this, you've spoken about it. What are the ways that bad mother anxiety affects you still? Oh, you know, someone recently asked me, they said, okay, so now you've written this book, this sort of, you know, manifesto against the bad mother or how often do you feel like a bad mother now that you've you know gone out and rejected it and are calling for everybody just to you know reject the terms and I said well I have made, I have significantly improved <laughs> and I probably only feel like a bad mother 78% of the time. <laughs> down a lot from like 96.2 but you know still there's work to be done right you know, I think I'm just thinking today today I had a, a business call Something was getting, I have a, a, a TV pilot in the works and it was getting rescheduled and scheduled. And I had just picked up my son from his overnight and we greeted each other, big hug and kisses, and we stopped off at the market to get some of his favorite things for dinner. And the whole meal, what was I doing? Figuring out this alternative meeting date because we had to decide it by five o'clock. And, um, and I, the whole, in the back of my head, the whole time I'm thinking, oh my God, get off the phone, your poor baby hasn't seen you in 24 hours, and what a horrible person, how could you be doing this to him, and on and on and on and on and on. So I finally hung up the phone and, you know, 
knelt down and grabbed him and hugged him, and he basically was like, what is your problem, lady? I was filling, <laughs> happily filling the cart with all kinds of stuff while you weren't paying attention. Right. Right. So it's your need. You need him. I mean, we, I don't want to pinpoint yeah, yeah. We, we, all of us, we need our children to reassure us that we're doing a good job. Exactly. <laughs> and that's too big a burden right. for them. It really is. It's not fair. Right. It's not fair. I mean, I think the thing... I, the thing that I have realized is that for me, the project of motherhood is replete with error and mistakes. I mean, I, I, I do the wrong thing the wrong, right, in quotation marks, things right. more often than I do the right thing. And the best I can say for myself is that I, by and large, have good intentions. So I could either spend, I think I spent so much time in the early years of being a mother worrying about that and beating myself up about it, that that, you know, instead of wasting all that time feeling bad about things I've done, I should have been paying attention to the moment, you know? So it's like uh-huh. I lost, if I had if I had spent five minutes being a bad mother and 20 minutes feeling like a bad mother, my kid had lost 25 minutes of my, my time and affection. And if I had just, you know, chalked it up to, you know, life and moved on, then the, we, I would have saved 20 minutes of both of our lives. Right, and of course we, we obsess far longer about the bad thing we did than the amount of Absolutely. time it took to do said bad thing. Absolutely. And right. it's still, you know, there's still, I have um, two kids with learning issues, and I, you know, have to, I know that I had nothing, that there was nothing, you know, I did that made my daughter dyslexic. I know that, that there's nothing that I said that made my son have ADHD, but I still feel terribly guilty and mm-hmm. so worried. And um, and that's such a, it's such a useless emotion. It doesn't get you anywhere. Even if what you really want to do, like I have this sort of, the irony is that everyone is going to like stop feeling like a bad mother. But it's like yet another way to feel guilty about not being a good enough mother is that you spend too much time worrying about being right, a bad right. mother. So stop worrying about it. And oh my God, I didn't stop worrying about it. So I'm now I'm an extra bad mother. <laughs> yeah. You know? Then where is the exit from this exactly. awful trap? This right. You know, one of one job. of my friends said to me that parenting is just one of those things that can't be done right because your child always, you always fear that the child reflects on you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was interested in your book, you don't describe a number of kind of public scenes where the child is acting out and there's this huge, you know, discipline problem in some grocery store or restaurant, which are a lot of the bad parent moments that, Yes. I've had, or even I've been really lucky in that. Um, I think my kids. I've had a couple of moments like that, but they've mostly more been funny, more funny than anything else. I remember once I was, I was t- driving my daughter to pick up barbecue, and um, we had we were listening to Harry Belafonte in the car. This old CD that had, um, had been kicking around our house, and she's about two and a half, and we got to the barbecue place, and we got in line, and it, it was, it's in a, a part of Oklahoma that has more African-American residents than white, and we were the only white people in line, and all of a sudden, my little girl starts singing, jump down, spin around, pick a bale of cotton, oh. because that was, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, and these people are looking at me, and they're like, lady, are you kidding me? And I like, wanted to launch into this whole explanation, of, but I, you know, what could you do but just like. Shake you were doomed. Laugh. You were doomed. Crazy. It was one of, but you know that's that's more on the long lines of the things my kid his kids have done to me, like by being just so completely insane in public. But right. um, 
That's a pretty painful one. Yeah. You, and but I have I had friends. My I have a very good friend who had it was had it was recovering from a C section and a new more baby and her toddler was going to tantrum in the IKEA parking lot and my friend could not pick her up because it just had the C section and she finally basically yelled her into her car seat, shouted, shouted, shouted until she got into the car seat. Well, half an hour later, doorbell rings. It's two police officers standing at her door. Oh. Someone wrote down her license plate and reported her to the cops. So they come into the house and they see that there are like toys everywhere and she's breastfeeding the baby and the, you know, the worst thing in that house is a baby Einstein video. <laughs> and they, and of course they've been in the same position, you know, those very same police officers. But what they said to her is that, you know, we're really sorry, but this now goes, don't do this again because mm. now you have a file. Oh. So now here's this mom. So now for the rest of her life, every time she's like, you know, in a parking lot and her kid's throwing a tantrum and she wants to say, get in that car right now. She has to kind of look around and, oh, my God, is someone going to call the police because I scolded my kid. Right, so and she feels she has a permanent record. Right. And I'm sure you have their listeners who are saying to themselves, see, that's just what she should do. She should never yell at her kid, and I'm very glad that she's going to think about that now. But you know what? I, people who live in glass houses, and I, I promise you all of our houses are made of glass. Honestly. Right, and all of us have yelled. And all of us have tortured ourselves about it. Exactly. <laughs> On that note, I just want to say again, we are going to have to stop. I yell at Waldman. Her book is Bad Mother, Chronicle of Maternal Crimes, Minor Calamities, and Occasional Moments of Grace. It's a wonderful read. Thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. My thanks to Jen Hodson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. If you want to contact me to get more information or suggest a new topic for a show, Email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30, I'll be hosting Nicole Chasen, continuing the theme of bad mother anxiety. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.